Welcome to the Crisis Response Podcast, a show about the regular folks who are tackling major problems and transforming how communities watch out for each other. I'm Jason Friesen, and on the show today, how Gabriella Wong's experience as the child of two deaf parents inspired her to launch Access SOS, a game-changing technology that makes it easy for the deaf and hard of hearing to communicate with 911 dispatchers when calling for emergency assistance. Hello, Gabby. Welcome to the Crisis Response Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Jason. Yes, our pleasure. So you are the founder and executive director of Access SOS. Could you share what is Access SOS? What do you do? What's your mission? Um, So Access SOS, we are a nonprofit that's driven by technology. We believe that technology is the core of our mission. And our mission overall is to make emergency help accessible for all, but in particular, deaf and hard of hearing people, people who don't communicate in English with dispatchers, and people who might be in situations where it's scary to talk out loud for help, um, such as if you're in a domestic violence situation and the person that is scaring you or hurting you is right next to you and you can't use your voice to call for help. It's a really awesome and necessary mission. And you have just such a powerful backstory. I'm wondering if you could share about how you got involved in this and and how you were led to start this fantastic company. Yeah. um, So this comes from personal experience. Uh, Both my parents are deaf. And sign language is my very first language. I learned sign language before I even learned how to talk. And I grew up really seeing how my parents were constantly left out of everyday situations. Um, I never went to the movie theaters growing up because the movies were not closed captioned. And so kids would talk about the latest movie that came out and I'd be like, I have no idea what's going on. So just being left out, just pop culture references, but really, my parents sometimes weren't able to watch the nightly news because it was not closed captioned. So they were being left out of being informed citizens of what was going on locally, um, nationwide. But it wasn't until I realized that being left out could mean life or, or death. My father, he was home alone and he had a medical emergency. Um, we found out later that his gallbladder ruptured. And he was not able to make a phone call to 911 for help because he's deaf. And what he ended up doing was sending a text message to me and my mom, and to me in particular, to make that voice phone call to 911 for him. But I wasn't near my phone at that time. And I felt a sense of guilt. Um, My father was able to survive his medical emergency. But what happened if it was more serious? And that's led. That's what led me on this path to start Access SOS because I realized that text to 911 wasn't available at my parents' hometown at that time and that there were 37 million Americans that are deaf and hard of hearing that can't call 911 in an emergency. And my research led me to find that approximately 30% of 911 call centers accept text messages but there's 70% out there in the United States that don't have that capability right now, at least, 
to accept a text message to 911. So that's why technology is the core of what we, our solution and our mission, because we have a mobile web app that translates text into a 911 phone call so that 911 call centers can receive a call for help from someone who is deaf, whether or not they have text to 911 or if they don't. That's incredible, really powerful story. And, and you know, you're speaking from personal experience. What was it that pushed you to say, no longer just a, a, a bystander, so to speak, but rather I'm actually going to go and start a company that's going to address this. How did you come to that decision? I came to that decision because I was tired and frustrated at the alternatives. Um, people would talk about next generation 911. People would talk about how that's coming. I would talk to people that manage 911 call centers, um, public safety answering points. So if I say PSAP, that's what I mean. Talking about how they have teletype writers, TTYs, and how, why couldn't a deaf person call in using a TTY? And realizing that there was this huge gap in knowledge because deaf people, if they talked to deaf people or communicated with them or had a basic conversation with a deaf person, they don't use TTYs anymore. They're just this old piece of machinery that my parents threw out 10 years ago. And so there's this lack of knowledge. And because I feel like I can communicate in sign language and I can speak out loud and I can hear, I was that person to bridge that gap in access to tell people this is what the deaf community is facing and also communicate resources to the deaf community. So you, you did your background research, you did your due diligence. Did you talk to any of the, the legacy providers, right? The big companies out there that are providing the technology. For example, the first one you know, that comes to mind is Motorola. Did you talk to any of these companies to find out what they were doing? So companies like, um, I would give you an example, Intrado. They tried to build their own technology um, I, I believe it was a mobile app to bridge that gap in access where um, you would download Intrado's mobile app and it would work with legacy 911 call centers and somehow, I believe, translate that text to 911. But, but deaf people didn't know about the app. And Intrado, I believe, and I'm not sure, I believe they saw that this wasn't profitable. And so marketing it to people who lack access, quick access to 911, wasn't in their best business interest and in their business model. So we serve this, this gap in the market that isn't profitable, doesn't have revenue. And that's our mission and calling because we do see that this is a need, but it's not quite, it doesn't fit a revenue business model. Right. So, so how did it work? I, we're both graduates of Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. And I remember that I got a phone call from you. Uh, this was years ago about you had this idea and somebody at Columbia told you that I was involved in emergency response and we should talk. And I remember that conversation because you were asking a lot of very good questions 
but then I didn't hear from you for a while until our paths crossed sometime later. So I'm wondering if you could share about how this actually worked. How did you go from inspired, you know, righteous indignation at what's going on and how people are being left out? You do some background, ask some questions. You see that there's an opportunity and a necessity for this technology. But how do you go from all of that to we're going to build it? Yeah, Jason, I remember that very conversation. I think you were in D.C. at the time. And I remember you specifically said that the, this, the use case that we're trying to solve is absolutely needed. And hearing that from you because you work in first response was was very in emergency response um, was very encouraging. Um, and yeah, we I didn't we didn't communicate for a while. And during that that time where it started just from a thought in my mind, an idea to actually implementing it and launching it, it first really just started with what are the gaps and what could we do to solve that gap? So initially I thought it was gonna be, a, we were gonna be some sort of, I was gonna do some policy or advocacy work on the side. Um, but when I would talk and talk to people that had influence on the policy side and the advocacy side, so the National Deaf Organization, people in the National Emergency Number Association, Nina, um, people who were adjacent to the Federal Communications Commission, I would ask them like, okay, let's let's pass some sort of policy or let's change the way um, the ADA um, recommends TTYs. That's old technology. Let's let's change this in some way. What I was finding again and again and again was that even though, even if some sort of policy or mandate was passed, some magical policy that uh, mandated that 911 call centers should implement text to 911 within a year, they would not be able to because some of them are very fragmented, they're under-resourced, they're understaffed, they lack the budget, they lack the equipment to upgrade their systems to text to 911. And so that's when we realized, okay, maybe a technology solution is something that we should build. But what would that look like? Where do we even start? And so my background um, is, I've done a little bit of coding, but when I lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at that time, I had a really good friend who knew how to code and did mobile apps. So I talked to her about this problem and we were like, okay, but we don't even know what to build. And so from there, doing just a lot of research and talking to our deaf and hard of hearing community members and talking to friends and talking to just anyone who would be willing to talk to me about what this solution would look like. And also really talking to 911 dispatchers and seeing what gaps they were facing in delivery, information, calls, people that 911 call centers that had text messaging and what were their pain points. And ultimately the main themes we found was that people wanted something that was icon driven because pictures were easier to process. People wanted something that um, had big buttons. 
that quickly contacted their 911 call center and they just wanted one button. And we were like, okay, when we talked to the 911 call centers and call takers themselves, they were like, one button for help would not help us out though, not help us out at all. We don't know where they're located. Do they need medical police and fire? Are they unconscious? Do they have trouble breathing? Like we need more contextual information. So it's really a balance of what the user wants, where the user wants just one click button and the, the 911 dispatcher needs more information. So we created the Access SOS app to have that functionality of being really easy to use, being icon driven, picking thoughtful icons and pictures so that the person having the emergency knows what to click, even though they might not be able to read English. And also making sure we guide the person through the process to give the dispatcher or the call taker the right amount of information so that they can send help quickly. So it was definitely a lot of talking to many people, putting ourselves out there and coming up with the solution and then iterating on that. So making, making wireframes, showing people, watching them test the wireframes and then realizing, okay, we're making some mistakes here and changing and iterating until we came to the, this version of the Access SOS app. So you did a lot of work beforehand. Uh, it sounds like you, I mean, before you even started writing any of the code, how long between putting pencil to paper and writing your first lines of code how much time passed there? I would say roughly, roughly like a little under a year uh, because we didn't want to build something that people didn't want. And we didn't want to waste time and resources to build. Like if I started, if we started coding on maybe day five of the idea, what we would, what we would build would be something like I wanted someone to be able to send videos and photos and pictures. And if I never talked to someone at a 911 call center, then I would realize, oh, we're building something, but they can't even receive this information. So it's a lot, it's like a balance of really understanding the technology, what's possible and dreaming big and like coming down to reality and also like making something that people really want, I think is the most important thing that's functional and what people want. Yeah, uh, makes a lot of sense. In our case, we started building a technology based on what was already being done. So we were not pioneering anything. We were just adapting it, but you're building something from scratch. So that's a whole nother process where where is it at now? Where is the Access SOS app today? Um, so where it's at today is our app is launched in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It is a mobile web app. So it's not quite an app that you go to the app store if you have an iOS phone or Apple phone or the Google Play Store if you have an Android phone. And the reason why we went with that approach is because the thought of someone in an emergency needing to go to the app store, download our app, wait for it to download, remember the password, remember the email that they're using for the app store, 
And then reporting their emergency just kept me up at night. So we thought that the mobile web app, a quick, easy to remember um, website, contact911.org. So if you're in Santa Fe, we have QR codes around. They scan it if they have an emergency and then they quickly report their emergency. We get their location based on the phone's geo coordinates. And that was from people, user feedback, user research from dispatchers and people who may potentially have an emergency being in, a, in an area where they're not sure the address or the longitude and latitude coordinates and express interest from the 911 call center wanting an accurate location because maybe they don't receive an accurate location if it gives information from the person's nearest cell tower. So right now um, we, we grab their geo coordinates. Um, the person reports if it's a medical emergency, a police emergency, fire emergency, maybe there's a situation where it's all three and then they can quickly send that information. We translate that data into a phone call to 911 in Santa Fe, New Mexico right now. So, so far we've had about 700 um, ads to home screen, which we count as our web app downloads and two emergency calls using our app. So we just launched very recently, but that's what we have right now. And where we wanna go in the future from again, talking to our deaf and hard of hearing community members and finding that there are situations where they really don't want to use our app, to be frank, um, especially for police encounters, because the thought of a armed police law enforcement showing up and maybe losing that information that the person that is requesting help is a deaf person, and maybe the officer says something out loud, gives directions out loud, and the person is not responding because they can't hear and something escalates and someone gets hurt. So that's where we find ourselves thinking about the future direction of the Access SOS app and requesting help from people that are trained in their emergency and not always defaulting to law enforcement. Wow, uh, that's that's a really interesting scenario. That sounds very plausible, but not one that you would come across every day. What did it take to get the program to get Santa Fe nine one one on board? I anybody who's been you know working with municipalities knows that it's oftentimes. Uh, can be a longer process and, in, you know, a lot of people need to sign off. And so for your first program to be with a, a, a pretty big city 911 is no small accomplishment. Uh, could you share a little of how that, how that played out? It really played out from um, persistence and luck, a, a combination of both. Um, I'll talk about the persistence piece, finding who in Santa Fe was the, the key decision makers, the key stakeholders. I was working with websites that were last updated years ago and the people find, you know, making cold calls and cold emails to people whose emails didn't work and finding who the key decision makers were. 
so that's the persistence piece to it. And finally getting connected and learning the intricacies of New Mexico and Santa Fe itself, knowing who makes the decisions on what equipment 911 call centers should have, uh, finding who those people are, but also really the luck piece that comes in. And I want to talk about why we launched in Santa Fe first, because people might be like, why Santa Fe? If we look at the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission's text to 911 registry of who has text to 911 and who doesn't, the state of New Mexico is completely left out. It doesn't have text to 911 at all. And in my conversations with them, um, it might take two years, five years, 10 years, not sure. But they do not have that technology and we wanted to give them access to it. In Santa Fe itself, there is a New Mexico school for the deaf and they have deaf staff members and all the, not all, but many deaf children that live in the state attend school in Santa Fe. So that's why we wanted to launch there. So I talked about the persistence piece of it, getting the New Mexico school for the deaf to be our advocates was another piece of it going in person, um, made connections. It was particularly particularly different or difficult during COVID because I think in-person interactions is very much more impactful, but finding the our advocates at the New Mexico School for the Deaf to advocate for our technology was the other piece. And then where the luck side of it came in was I'm part, uh, I'm co-chair of the National Emergency Number Association's Communication Modalities Committee. And the person I replaced as co-chair, so they were formerly co-chair, they left, I became co-chair, and they trained me how to just chair responsibilities of the Nina group, happened to transfer to the Santa Fe Peace app. And so I had a warm connection to that person and really had that credibility and trusting working relationship with that person. And so when I said, hey, we want to launch this in Santa Fe, that person was on board. So a lot of a lot of magic, a lot of luck, but like also a lot of persistence. Absolutely. That is quite a uh, fortunate turn for you. No doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> that better, right? So you're now in Santa Fe. Uh, with your first launch, and are you looking to launch in other locations, or are you sticking with this one to see? I mean, it, it's the kind of thing I imagine where the more volume you have, the more experience you're getting, but you also don't want to find yourself in over your head, right? So uh, how how are you balancing those two? Yeah, so how we're balancing those two is really being thoughtful on where we launch next and really thinking about the future as well. So I mentioned previously that where we are now is our app calls 911. Like it delivers that information to 911. But hearing from our community members and communicating with them and finding that they don't want law enforcement involved in certain situations and knowing where we're headed. So for where we are currently in the current version of the app, 
launching, being thoughtful in our launch and thinking about Albuquerque and expanding in the state of New Mexico itself, but also thinking about a pilot program for cities that have these alternatives to law enforcement response. So examples of that in San Francisco are the street crisis response team, the homeless outreach team, the overdose response team. Um, so living in San Francisco, I'm very aware of these alternatives. And I just want our app to be able to connect, ask for help from these services. And so while we are thinking about expanding to the state of New Mexico for the current iteration of the app, being mindful that we think that requesting help away from 911 for some particular situations is in our future direction. Interesting um, how you start going down one path and then you see that there are actually a lot of other needs you can be meeting with the same exact technology. That's Yeah, pivot, pivoting is being, being an entrepreneur is really pivoting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we've done many of the same moves ourselves, especially exactly what you're talking about, starting out working with formal emergency services in low and middle income countries, and then seeing that there's a lot of parallels between these alternative response groups in, in North America. And they're, they're struggling with a lot of the same issues, particularly when it comes to the technology. So that makes a lot of sense. On that note, one thing you mentioned at the beginning was when you started, you were you were thinking about policy and legislation. And uh, we, we all know how slow that happens. But I'm wondering, has that changed? You know, do you still see that as a necessary component? And do you see yourself playing in any part in that? Or are you just leaving that to the side and, and sticking on programs and, and implementing the software and supporting active groups? No, I, I think about that. Um, I think about policy and advocacy a lot, but I'm now shifting my focus to think about how our app can, and the information, the volume, the proof that this is something that is needed by deaf and hard of hearing people, people who are left out of accessing these emergency communication um, platforms and um, modes of communicating, how our app can influence and show demand, maybe not federally, but locally. So getting, so my vision is getting the mayor of Albuquerque, the mayor of Santa Fe to do something locally to make that change and say, hey, we need this, like, look how many deaf people are using this platform to contact emergency help. Look at, this is a need, we need to prioritize this in our city, in our state, and thinking about that more locally than the way I approached it from the very beginning, where I was like, let's go to the FCC, let's go to the DOJ, let's go to Nina. And think of it more like our app could really help prove this concept, really show that we have this data, we have numbers that show that this is needed. So thinking thinking of that in a more local way versus my my previous thought of this big vision, this big picture thing. 
um, and being thoughtful locally. Yeah, how does the rollout of 988 impact what you're doing? Does it have any impact? It has a huge impact and something that really shows the momentum of this. Um, there's been data collected so far that 988 um, has had an increase in calls, an increase in chats, an increase in texts. But the the main, and I want to preface this where a majority of 988 calls are resolved within the call, the chat or the text. I want to say that. But there are certain certain situations, and that's where we want to come in, where maybe first response, some sort of help is needed to be sent to the person. And with 988, the rollout, which we're so excited for and think it's a great resources for, resource for communities, they don't, and rightfully so, don't know where the person is located and where they're calling from. And when help, immediate, immediate help is needed to be sent to their location, 988 doesn't know where they are. And so for us, if the person is willing to opt in and know that they could ask for help for mental health emergencies in particular, that's where we see ourselves fitting that gap in access. Because right now, if I contact or I send a text message to 988 and I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my number will get routed based on my mobile area code. So I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I I have a suicidal ideation. I have a plan. I'm ready to implement it, but maybe I need some sort of help. I need someone to come and check in on me. If I contact 988 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my call for help or text or chat for help will go to San Francisco, California or the Bay Area. And that's not helpful at all. And we just want to eliminate that inefficiency and make it really quick and accessible, especially in that piece. So that's that's why we're really excited about 988 and we can see ourselves filling that gap in access. And just, I should have said this for people who don't know, 988 is the suicide and crisis lifeline that is yeah. the national number for people who are having suicidal ideations, mental health crises, and also one of the things that gets left out a lot too is it's for veterans as well. Um, so they've kind of merged these different crisis lifelines and, and put them under the 988 roof. Exciting times in crisis response, that's for sure. Uh, so much mm -hmm. change is going underway. Now, you mentioned at the beginning that you are a nonprofit technology organization. How are you, and not asking for specific names so much, but what types of funders are you finding willing to support what you're doing? Um, is it government? Is it private, corporate, individual? Where, how does your funding get broken down? Our funding gets broken down um, by organizations or companies that have a corporate social responsibility arm. And seeing that our mission is to give access to people that are typically underserved. 
and CSR, corporate social responsibility arms that are technology companies. That's where we have found success in getting funds from. Also a combination of nonprofit venture organizations that want to fund innovative ideas. That's another um, resource and avenue that we've had individual donations as well. And where we wanna go in the future is um, some sort of earned income revenue. So we're in talks to possibly have our first paying customer and really scaling that. But right now it's a mixture of CSR grants, uh, venture or organizations, foundations and individual donations. Makes a lot of sense that that's exactly what we're doing. A lot of technology companies and private foundations, some social ventures. Um, yeah, social ventures, that's the right word, exactly. Yeah. And, but really uh, long-term hoping that we can turn this into earned revenue so that we can sustain ourselves with paying customers. Um, exactly. One, one other thing I forgot to mention, which is a very big component of why we're able to do the work we're doing is universities and our volunteers that have been so generous with their time. Um, so universities um, in the sense that um, partnering with universities like the University of San Francisco, UC Berkeley, um, MIT, Dartmouth, they all have um, some sort of program where they fund or encourage students to work for a nonprofit organization, whether it's in design, whether it's in engineering. And that has been so impactful for us. And also volunteers that believe in our mission and are willing to give us translations, willing to do our design, willing to do our user testing. Uh, so. I want to say that is probably the, their time has probably been the biggest impact on our organization. Absolutely. Hands on deck, um, worth their weight in gold. I totally get that. So if there was a, an organization that, you know, listens to this and is like, wow, that we really need what Access SOS has, how, how would they go about contacting you, partnering with you? What, well, one, how do they contact you? But then how does a partnership look? How do you set those up? So a partnership would um, just start out by just saying hello. Um, my email is, um, you could contact us at um, access, A-C-C-E-S-S-O-S dot I-O. That's our website. Um, from there, you can um, fill out a partnerships form. Um, you can email me directly at Gabriella, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-A, at accesssos.io, again, A-C-C-E-S-S-O-S.io. And where that conversation starts is really understanding what your needs are, what our technology is, um, how we could work together to outreach to community members, because our app does not work without your local community members, like period. So understanding that, what your needs are, who we can talk to on the community side that have huge constituent bases. And also in an emergency situation, 
what resources are out there. Um, we know there's ambulance, we know there's police, we know there's fire, but if you're in an area where there's alternatives, where whether it's a mobile crisis response team, um, community members, um, if you're at a university, if it's an escort service, um, if it's late at night for someone who is in the library and wants to walk home, but it's kind of scary outside, what other resources are out there? We would love to talk to you about how we can connect our app to those resources to deliver the right kind of help. Fantastic. And and let's say a community says, all right, we're in, count us in, we want to do this. They're going to introduce you, I, I'm assuming at some point to the 911 call center. That's that's the goal. And and what would a 911 call center want to know from you? You know, what 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 are the questions that they're asking you? They're probably going to ask us Oh, what, what equipment do we need? What, how do we need a plugin? What do we need to download? What do we need to upgrade? And one thing I want to say is as long as you can receive a voice call, you can receive information from our app. So that's the one thing I want to want to say. There is no integration there. There is no wow. something you need to download. As long as you are, your piece app can receive a voice call you can you can receive information from our app. Wow, that is a dream. No integration needed. All, as long as they can receive a phone call, they can plug into your technology. Exactly. That is a smart design right there. Um, my goodness, we have the exact opposite problem, which as as you're well aware is as the saying goes, if you've seen one 911 call center, you've seen one 911 call center. And uh, we learn every time we talk to them that how true that is. Everybody does it a little bit different. Uh, so having a way to just get past all of that is hats off. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Uh, I wish I, I envy you in so many ways. So now you're looking at alternative deployments or and you're also looking at launching in new locations, new cities. Um, mm -hmm. what are your, what's, what's your, what are your goals? If you can share any for the next, you know, we're almost, I can't believe it. We're almost at the end of the year. So what are you looking at for 2023? So for 2023, what we have right now is we've, our team has talked to multiple people in the crisis intervention response space, people in the 911 call taking space, people that have gone through mental health emergencies. And we have come up with a new design of the Access SOS app. And it's to target people who see murky gray situations where maybe police should come, maybe an ambulance should come, maybe if that an alternative to that, so such as the street crisis response team, maybe they should come. We want to be the go-to app for any murky situation where immediate help is needed, but they're not sure what kind of help is needed. And so we, we've created a new design flow of the app where we probe and ask questions of the user and we ask what kind of help, like what they're seeing. And then from there, we make a decision on what kind of help should be sent. So that is in our future. 
but we need to partner with a city that has these resources that can send that meet that meet our request for help. So if it looks like someone is walking in an intersection erratically and maybe they'll get hit by a car, but maybe they're they're having a mental health breakdown. Law enforcement may not be needed for that situation. It might be someone that's trained in communicating with someone that's having a mental health emergency or breakdown. And it might not be law enforcement. And so we're looking for that city that's willing to go that direction with us. And I don't think that should be all that hard because the reality is that one of the things that isn't always communicated for for very various reasons, but a lot of the times law enforcement, EMS, fire, they don't want to go to these calls, right? They 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 would much rather happen have alternative responders going. I know of a city in Texas um, told me that when their mobile crisis response teams, their mental health responders get on scene, the police applaud them. They're so glad they're there because now you have trained experts who can handle this and the police can leave. Because yeah. especially when you're talking about these mental health crises, those take very expert professionals to, you know, well-trained professionals to handle them and to de-escalate the situation. And one, the police, paramedics, fire, don't have that training. And two, those calls can go on for a long time. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you're tying up a, a law enforcement officer for a mental health crisis, when there's actually other crimes that could really use a law enforcement officer to be there, well, they're tied up right now. So, you know, a, a lot of people are obviously in the media, there's all this talk and, and they're trying to play the old us and them game a lot of the times. But I think that there are a lot of cities out there that are actually quite relieved that we're now having these discussions about alternative responders because they were never really trained well to handle them in the first place. So, I mean, it, it's a really fantastic time for yourself and for everybody else who's involved in this space to to get in early and to make a big change. And I think what you're saying earlier about the policy stuff too, oftentimes it's the on the ground activities that are going to lead the policy changes. And and until they can see what's actually happening, it's, it's just abstract. Maybe this will work in the policy, but if they can see it, then that makes it a lot better. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Gabby. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything you'd like to share with any listeners about, you know, if they're trying to follow in your footsteps, trying to, to create a service for for at-risk, vulnerable, marginalized populations or even budding tech entrepreneurs because yeah. there are a lot of those out there too. I want to say that if you have a vision and you see that there is a problem and that you have, I, I think it takes courage. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of grit and really believing in yourself. But if you have that vision to execute something and see something come to life, like see something tangible being built, I say that this is the role for you because we need more people that have lived experience 
who have been in this space, who know that there's a problem, experience the problem and think of creative solutions to fix it. Like we need more of you out there. I know entrepreneurship is a really tough journey, but it's incredibly rewarding when you see something that you've built come to life. Absolutely. Something coming of nothing uh, can certainly keep you going a lot longer than, than, than other jobs. Thank you so much, Gabby. I really appreciate it. Look forward to keeping in touch with you and, and getting updates. And we'll also include your, your website and contact information so people can reach out to you if they want to. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for thinking of me to interview and just allowing me to share my story. I so appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>